you're listening to I Might Be Wrong, a podcast hosted by myself, Rich Needham, and my co-host, Henry Salmon. Hello and welcome. You are listening to I Might Be Wrong. I am Rich. I'm Henry. Hello, Rich. How are you doing? Good, mate. Good. I am excited about this week's episode because I get to pick and I've picked a band that I'm very excited for and an album in particular that I'm excited for. Yeah, well, it's an album which we've come across separately i think and it's an album which i could just as much lay claim to as wanting to <laughs> to call it on the podcast uh who have you picked i have picked mercury rev and their 1998 release deserter songs huge huge album for those of you who don't know this on the podcast you should be ashamed of yourselves it's a fantastic <laughs> piece of music if you don't know it uh yes absolutely if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know this album but are you too young what's going on i'm confused anyway we should talk a bit about mercury rev and actually introduce them because the first bit of research that i did slightly confused me okay because mercury rev is an american indie rock band formed in 1989 in buffalo new york and i always thought they were british really yeah don't know why just did just had that feeling yeah and you listen to them you listen to their sound and you read the names of the songs and you listen to the lyrics and of course they're american but for some reason i think because they emerged into that late 90s british scene that where guitar music and indie was starting to go a bit more underground we'd lost the last of the brit pop it was very much a hip-hop and pop-led chart situation and so i think i just thought that at that time any music that i was hearing that was indie-ish was british yeah in my head they they come packaged up with flaming lips granddaddy early radiohead as that kind of post brit pop there was this long list of guitar bands who were trying to do something different just going for a new angle and mercury rev just knocked it out of the park with deserted songs absolutely shall i tell you a little bit about the band go for it so the original band members were david baker on vocals jonathan donahue on vocals and guitar sean mccoviak known as grasshopper on guitars and clarinet which gives you a hint about where we're going on the sound with this one. (laughs) Dave Fridman on bass guitar, Suzanne Thorpe on flute, and Jimmy Chambers on drums. Although the current lineup is quite different with just Donahue and Grasshopper joined by Jesse Chandler. There's actually been quite a lot of lineup changes over the years. There's 14 past members listed on Wikipedia. Wow. They actually met originally while they were students at the University at Buffalo, and the band was initially formed apparently to score its members' student films. Oh, okay. Which again, I had no idea. And I actually did most of my research backwards for this episode. So I listened to the songs first and made notes on those and then came back to do a bit of research on the band themselves. And a lot of my notes on the music talk about the film soundtrack feel to everything. Right. And so this totally makes sense that that's where their initial mindset comes from. Yeah, they do that kind of soundscapey thing, don't they? There's um, a lot of their music opens almost cinematically, kind of mm-hmm. with strings, and you just it it'll gradually build into a song, which I guess is how most film scores kick off. Yeah, so they'd actually released four albums and already split with founding member Baker. 
citing artistic differences because of course that's what always happened in the <laughs> 90s when you split with a member the previous albums had generally been strongly received critically but had just not been particularly commercially successful and that changed with deserter songs which was both critically and commercially successful and moved them into the mainstream at least in the uk where enemy gave them album of the year but it almost didn't get made oh really mm. explain so I read a really fascinating, you'll appreciate this, Quietus interview with Donahue from 2018, mm-hmm. where he talks specifically about this album, because at that point they were doing a 20-year anniversary tour of the album. And he said, after See You on the Other Side, we went through a giant sea change in the way we viewed what was going on. With the group, it was the way we interacted with each other, but most of all, the way we interacted with life personally. In the period after See You on the Other Side and before Deserter Songs, there was a total dissolve of self. And I think, in part, that is where the record began, in that dissolving of everything. When we began it, we didn't have a manager, a label, or a lawyer. Everything had ground completely to a halt. I didn't know exactly how it all began again, but when the bubble began to go again, or what sparked it, but something did... I can remember it was just down to darkness. And so he talks a bit about not darkness where everything's empty, but darkness where everything's full, but you can't work out what those things are and all of that slowly coming together. So the thing that really sprung him back into musical action was he got a phone call from Tom and Ed from the Chemical Brothers out of the blue who said, would you like to play on a song which was on private psychedelic reel? And apparently he almost cried because he couldn't believe that anyone remembered them or the band and actually wanted to work with him. Huh, that's uh, awesome. So they sent him the basic tracks and he recorded a load of stuff. And he talks about it as being a great sun through the clouds moment in a long period of darkness. It did warm me up from the chill. I thank them to this day. But even then, the whole album started very slowly. How interesting. Mm. Yeah, no, I didn't know any of that. This whole article, the quotes from it are, are, are wonderful and really interesting to put perspective on the actual music itself. So he talks about even in the beginning of the records, there wasn't a lot said. We'd put down some little words and melodies two or three days in my attic, then it might be two or three weeks before we spoke again. But at other points, it was as if fireflies were sparking off across the lawn. And other times we would blink in unison and feel, yes, all right, that was a good take. But then it would crash and burn right after. I don't think it was one person. It was people going through some real inner workings, but not communicating what was happening. Dave was a lot more stable as a person than any of the rest of us were at that point. He'd been raising a family and getting a studio together, and he was in a very stable emotional and mental plane at the time. And I think in its own way, that was an anchoring point. I think that's the only reason that it came out at all. Right. I remember handing it in and there was no immediate response from the label. It was quiet. I don't say that to put them down when they pricked their ears up was when they started to send the record out to press people. Again, I'm sure it wasn't anyone's priority the first day they came across it on the editor's desk, but one by one, the phone calls started to come in. Then it had this momentum and Grasshopper and I were talking much more. Well, I guess we better get a band together and learn how to play these songs and some of the older songs too. It was the reestablishing of every relationship as a new band. And he talks about that not so much in terms of, oh, we could be a band and we could do some big stuff, but actually the re-establishing of his friendship with one of his very good friends that he felt had sort of crumbled away. And the fact that that was his focus on wanting to really do something with the album and, and play it live and do more. Wow. What a what a backstory. Because uh, in, the, in the first song on the album, the very last line um, of Holes, it says, 
bands, those funny little plans that never work quite right. And I guess that's where all that comes from. It's just this mess and this chaos and out of that you you form a new thing yeah and we should talk a little bit about their music style generally so we talked about them a couple of weeks ago when we covered the flaming lips and i do think there's definitely a good comparison there but i feel like they're a bit more of a quieter more thoughtful less overtly trying to be weird band than the flaming lips but they still have some of that weirdness there. They've got that kind of st- still weird psych pop oddity to them, but there's a darkness that they have that the Flaming, flaming Lips wouldn't really admit to, I think, yeah. even though it's probably going on in New Wayne Coin, as you, <laughs> as you brought up last time, straight from the the outset of Deserter's songs. It's kind of mirrored in the album cover, that kind of those dark dark blues and the the kind of slightly creepiness that goes on in the background it's uh it's not all good in in their life mm-hmm. and they do a brilliant job of setting that scene with really strong music really really strong musicianship and use of different instruments and we we sort of briefly touched on this their music has a really large orchestral influence in it yeah there's a real art in being able to draw a song out and not just for effects, have strings that last for some time, like in the, the opening to the album in holes, yep. where you've got this expansiveness. Or then in something like Endlessly a bit further on, where you've got this, it's it's almost a, a smaller sound that mm-hmm. it kind of just like creeps along like a little kind of badger underground i don't know i don't know what i'm talking about but (laughs) it's kind of that they're comfortable creating soundscapes which most bands would shy away from and we should jump into talking about those things on the album you've already mentioned holes a couple of times it opens as you've mentioned with strings and then his delicate voice so his voice Mm. is not a strong big voice it's very fragile but the amount of emotion and power that's in there under the surface is just wonderful and i love that with the piano and strings and the woodwind and synths that just underpin everything in this intro and then around two minutes in it all just goes bonkers and kicks off and well, one of the things I've noted down is who would ever have thought that a theremin would be the instrument that leads a song kicking off yeah and it it works so well and for me back in the late 90s when i bought the album this was totally new completely new kind of thing my ears were like where's this come from this is great well you mentioned playing this album to your dad and his reaction from that when we talked on the flaming lips episode well i played it at home and i went away for a couple of days and then came back and dad said i've been listening to this album and he said he loved it and he likened it to the Beatles. And he said, when you were going to go and get a new Beatles record, you really didn't know what you were going to get. If you look at the breadth of their work and, and the new, it's hard for us to imagine, I guess, but the, the new directions that they took. Right. It meant that your your ears just kind of opened up to these new sounds and these new styles. And it was wonderful. And he said, Mercury did the same thing. They they created this this special kind of sound which he hadn't heard before and in some ways 
some of the songs which we'll go on to are, are quite Beatles-esque. Yeah. You know, and, and in some ways, you saying you thought they were British, you, there's that parallel there because a lot of these songs, you, you could have had them written by the Beatles, but they're not. So yeah, it, I was blown away when I f- first heard this this album and this first song in particular. Yeah, and I think people will think we are over-egging it a bit by comparing them with the Beatles, but I genuinely think this is such an underrated album in terms of if this had come out in the 60s or 70s, people would have been raving about this album. And there are more parallels with the Beatles. So the Beatles loved absurdist lyrics, and I love the absurd lyrics in here. So there's the line holes dug by little moles angry jealous spies got telephones for eyes come to you as friends and there's imagery in there that you can understand what they mean even though it sounds like nonsense yeah and it's the kind of thing you could imagine Lennon and McCartney churning out right you really could that's just the same way that they would write a song yeah we should jump to Opus 40 which is another orchestral cinematic epic but this is as far as I can remember, this is your favourite track on the album, right? So I'm going to let you talk about it a bit. Yeah, this this album's already lodged in my head and then this Opus 40 track comes along. I went backpacking with this album and this became a bit of an anthem for me. As you say, it starts orchestrally, but then it kicks into this very square 4-4 four, four time beat as the song opens up. Very Beatles-esque. This is probably the most... Beatlesy track of, of the whole album. Oh, I just, I, oh, the lyrics just opens with, well, she tossed all night like a raging sea. Uh, you just, you know, she's having a bad time and, and not sleeping well when it's uh, described like that. But uh, there's something about this song, whether it's the music or, or the lyrics. The, I, I love the, the lyrics saying, Catskilled Mansions, Buried Dreams, I'm Alive, She Cried, But I Don't Know What It Means. Yes. And I can't put my finger on why I like it so much. I just don't know what it is. But um, yeah, there's something about this song which is special and I can't really put a finger on it. It's joyous. There's a joy to this. Even though it's rooted in a lot of sadness, they talk about being really empty at the point when they were creating this stuff. But but there's there's hope and there's joy in there as well. Yeah, but then the flip side of it is in the chorus, he sings nights alone by your side and how empty, how sad is that? I mean, they're together but alone and yeah. But that's what some of the best bands in the world do. It's that combination of something hopeful with something sad and crushing at the same time. It's it's a skill that not many people can carry out. Yeah, so anyway, that's my pick. Where would you go next? Would you go Hudson Line? Yeah, so Hudson Line and The Happy End, I've sort of grouped together. So Hudson Line, if you're not paying attention, can almost wake you up a little bit because Opus 40 drifts to this beautiful finish and then all of a sudden you get this big jazz saxophone entry. Brilliant. But it's a lovely little ditty that breaks up the album and then you have that wonderful weirdness of The Happy End after it. The, The Hudson Line, again, you go back to Beatles lyrics satellites are chasing silver clouds away and technicolor raindrops wash gumballs down the drain it's crackers it's all tripping out on lsd and it's great yeah i I love it it's a song that if you listen to it by itself and then you listen to the rest of the album you'd think it shouldn't fit but it still does i think it's that moment of levity that you need in amongst all of the rest of the really quite deep and heavy stuff going on 
I'm interested that you mentioned the happy end though, because that's bonkers. Oh, I love it. <laughs> it's all over the place. It's bonkers, but in a way where it feels a bit like good jazz, if yeah. that makes sense. There's yeah. there's threads and themes and motifs running through it. And it just sort of makes me happy. I don't even know why. I just like it. It's funny. I hated. I, I didn't hate it. Didn't understand it when I was when I used to listen to the album. I used to try and skip it and get onto the following song. Mm-hmm. But now I, I I get how it holds the album together. And it is jazzy. It's really kind of proper proto jazz weirdness with pianos going on and clarinets pinging off in the background. It is slightly slightly odd. Yeah, it's great. It's it's weird, but it's great. And it fits with the weirdness and slight psychotic breakdown-y thing that's going on in some of the rest of the album. Yeah, and I guess it leads into probably their most well-known song. Well, this is the one that I absolutely adore. Goddess on a Highway. The piano guitar opening to this makes me happy every time I hear it. Yeah, um, ah, this this song is is a classic. More Beatles comparisons, I'm afraid. The bass line provides a lot of the melody in this, and that's a very Beatles-y trick. Yeah, I'd go with that. And uh, the moments where it just bursts to life in the chorus is uh, it's so good. This is If you don't know Mercury Rev and you don't know Goddess on a Highway, this is a stop the podcast and go and listen to this track <laughs> and then come back to us moment because uh, it's just, it's so beautiful. It's so powerful. It's so beautiful big as a song but also fragile as well it feels like you could shatter it just by looking at it wrong the only thing that got me when i first heard this was the the lyric about when i see your eyes arrive they explode like two bugs on glass and (laughs) i just i don't know the the only thing that gets me about that is i don't know a splatted bug and i i don't know i i get it but it slightly kind of got to me that such a brilliant song had a dead bug in the middle of it, but that's just, that's a detail. It's one of those weird lyric moments. And for me, it was slightly different because I think that was something that caught my attention and pulled me into the song rather mm. than something that distracted me from it, which yeah. it sounds like that's where you were. Yeah, but I, don't get me wrong. This is one of my favorite songs ever written. Love it. Could listen to it all day. And it's... um. Yeah, it's the for me, it's the joint highlight of the album along with uh, Opus 40. Yeah, I really can't argue with you on that one. I think they are two of the best songs written in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Oasis and Blur, but you are coming in second to these guys. I'd be fascinated to know what they thought of Mercury Rev. Really fascinated. I reckon Blur probably loved them and Liam probably thought they were shit. But it's the weird thing is that I reckon Noel probably loves them because for me, if you think about the Beatles career, you've got all the kind of early Beatles, poppier, rockier stuff, and then you've got the weird shit at the end. Oasis sort of cover the first half, and Mercury Rev have sort of covered a lot of the second half here. Fair point. I actually, I reckon he might be a closet fan. Don't know. Let's find out. Let's let's do some digging. I wouldn't be at all surprised. I want to talk about the funny bird. Yeah, because there's an amazing intensity to this. The Bass and the drums in the middle alongside that wailing guitar is just fantastic. Because again, it's another one that starts a little bit slow and you could think of it almost as a TV soundtracky entry to it. Yeah, and that's uh, another thing I like about this album is that as a kind of soundtrack, 
it, you can have this as a soundtrack. And as I say, when I was traveling around, this was this kind of playing in the back of my head all the time yep. soundtrack. And uh, it, it works really well. Yeah. And it's that, again, two minutes in, all of a sudden you just get this massive explosion of orchestral and guitars and it's just, it's just wonderful. The other thing that I haven't mentioned yet that I should mention is they use a lot of orchestral percussion. Yeah. So you hear like kettle drums rumbling away in the background sounding like thunder, which I, I love that as a thing in, in almost any indie rock album. Yeah, and it's something that I wasn't really exposed to before I bought this. Everything else in my catalogue was three or four piece guitar bands yeah and that's it that's what you're going to get but again it's something that the beatles and the beach boys did a lot was Mm -hmm. using that orchestral stuff to augment the music and the sound that they were looking for totally i just i just love this track where'd you go next do you go to the final one yeah i'm gonna jump to delta sun bottleneck stomp (laughs) and not just because it's got a great name i'm so glad they put this song on the album this is the it's not a cherry on a cake but it it's it's a really nice way to close an album because the album's quite intense and it's probably but by the time you get to this point if you've listened all the way through it's probably drummed up and evoked quite a lot of memory and thought and feeling and you put the bottleneck stomp on at the end of it and you're kind of bopping your head and everything's kind of it's done it's the end of the album chill out all right relax go back to what you're doing yeah it's great it brings you back up and you're right my notes basically say exactly what you've just said <laughs> i love the fact that it's positive and upbeat but it's also still sneakily off the wall particularly towards the end of the track there's a bit of weirdness that comes in but fun weirdness yeah no it's a uh, uh it's a really good way just to close the album i love it yeah absolutely and i cannot reiterate how good the rest of this album that we haven't talked about is I don't think there's a bad track on here. No. Unless you're someone that doesn't like the happy end. Agree. What about Beyond Deserter Songs? Because th- th- given that this album was so, so good and so well received, did you rush out and buy the next one? I thought I had. So their next album came out in 2001 and is called All Is Dream. And The Dark Is Rising on here is up there with goddess and opus in terms of how good their music can be at times Mm. i love the again orchestral big strings rolling drums at the start of this that that brings you into the song and the album and then i know nothing else on this album i listen to it and i I genuinely don't know anything else on here but it the Dark is Rising itself is just incredible. Did you buy this album? Yeah, well, so, yeah, I, I bought it and I loved it. And my CD got stuck in a car CD player and it couldn't get out and it got jammed in there. And in getting it out, I broke it. So I didn't replace it. So so this is one of those albums where probably about a week into listening to it, I lost it. So very familiar with a few of them um a drop in time is quite fun okay if you're looking for other tracks on there but yeah it's a sore point in that this album kind of vanished right when i probably would have got really into it because sonically it's very very similar to deserted songs Mm -hmm. yeah did you go on to the secret migration no and everything everything beyond this uh, i just don't know at all okay 
Well, I bought The Secret Migration oh, cool. probably a year or two after it came out. I remember seeing it in FOP on one of their sale rack type things because I think it came out and wasn't particularly well received. I don't think it was badly critically received, but it certainly didn't sell in the same way. I think people associated Mercury Rev with the late 90s and yeah. we'd got into that new wave, second wave of indie post-Britpop and so people were looking for that kind of stuff. And I think they were seen as being a bit old-fashioned. Yeah, I, I go with that. There were a lot of record labels, radio stations, media generally, which said anything around that time, it's gone. It's old school. It's it's passe. And yeah, this was the time when I guess hip-hop started to become big. Pop had a massive resurgence. Yep. And all of that kind of... If, if anyone was unfortunate enough to pick up a guitar and stand in front of a stage with a guitar on, it was kind of thought of as well as a bit bit old hat. Yeah, it feels a little bit like bands like Dire Straits in the punk era where they were just seen as being really unfashionable and so yeah. people didn't really listen to them or talk about them. But this is a great album. I think I bought it in amongst a bunch of other albums and listened to it a few times but got into other things at the same time so I didn't keep coming back to it but there's some great stuff on here Secret for a Song is absolutely wonderful it's a brilliant I mean these guys know how to open an album it's a brilliant album opener and I'd also say Across Your Ocean and Diamonds that three songs as an opener is just just brilliant ah you know what Secret for a Song Mm-hmm. Of course. Yes, I do know it. I d- it must have been on the radio. Yeah, I think so. That's a great shout. Yeah, and after that, I lost track as well, which I think is potentially a pity, but I've, I've literally no idea what the rest of their more recent stuff, and to be fair, anything before Deserter Songs is like. It might be brilliant, and I've just missed out, but sounds like you don't know either. So I think if you're listening to this podcast and you're a massive Mercury Rev fan, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us which albums we should dive into that aren't across that 98 to 2005 period. Yes. More input would be gratefully received, but uh, even on its own, if you cast away all of the other albums, then just sat in the middle of it is Deserter Songs. And it's uh, yes, what a brilliant piece of art for that that time right and this was when we were both finishing up school and i had a bunch of friends who i made very close friendships with around that time who were all into that kind of alternative non-mainstream music and so we we used to talk about this stuff all the time massively into it and i've made friendships over this album that's hmm. how important it was to that period of my life yeah well that's that's what good music can do yeah it can bring people together and uh there's no better measure of a good album than one that can make people do that. And for me, that was Radiohead with a couple of friends from school who we just went nuts over their, their early albums. Yeah. And um, and yeah, in the same way, this, this does a very similar thing because it's so different. Yeah. Ever seen them live? That's a sore spot. So I don't think they really played any live tours when we were at university i don't remember mercury Rift no. coming up as a as an opportunity to go and see them while we were in bristol but i had an opportunity to see mercury rev before then so okay. as i've mentioned i grew up on the outskirts of london just outside london but close enough to get xfm xfm ran a competition cool to win tickets to go and see mercury rev a very small venue in london and i entered Okay. And I won the tickets. 
and what I was you very excited a, about you won this a competition. It was just one of those ring in and call a number X wins tickets type thing. Yeah. And my mum said no, because it was on a school night and I couldn't go into London on a school night to go and see a gig. Oh no, free tickets. Free to pair of tickets. The height of their fame. I was, I Fuck. was furious. And then I'd sort of lost track of them by 2006, 2007, when I guess they were playing London venues and things like that. And yeah. I tried to work out if I'd seen them at a festival and... I might have seen them at Reading or a Leeds or somewhere like that, but if I did, it didn't have an impact on me enough to be like, oh my God, that was an incredible gig. Yeah. I think the thing that I'm most annoyed about is not knowing that three years ago they were touring this album in full, because I definitely would have gone to see that. Agree. Yeah, I, I would have done the same thing. Have you seen them live? Uh, no, 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 no. I don't think I had the opportunity even at a festival, and I've never registered seeing tickets come up for for one of their shows although weirdly when this album came out i'm not sure i would have jumped at it just because i was so into noise and these guys they would have been more of a you sit down and experience this rather than you stand up at the front and jump into a mosh bit which is kind of where i was my brain was at at that time that makes sense so no a bit of a shame um but i you know what i although i'm sad about it uh i think if they played now you'd have a big space to, to watch them in. I'd, I'd love to have seen them in a small, like 300 person venue, but no. Uh, and I don't mind. I've got, we've got the album. Um, Deserted songs is a, is a rock in the record collection. And uh, any of you out there who haven't got it should, uh, should grab it with both hands. Yes. I completely 100% agree with that. And, and in terms of influences, I think they were, my enjoyment of them was influenced by, having liked things like the Beatles and the Beach Boys from my dad's era, but they also reinforced my enjoyment of orchestral stuff within Indian rock music and the use of strings, them and elbow, very, very big part of my enjoyment of that side of things. Yeah, they must have influenced so many people. You look at bands like, I don't know, Fleet Foxes, and you go, they must have had some kind of influence. And and at the time, obviously, Granddaddy were doing their thing and it was a pretty similar kind of style. Obviously, we've talked about Flaming Lips. We've mentioned Radiohead who were doing their thing at the same time. So, yeah, just they, they haven't influenced me, but I, I know they've influenced other bands that I really enjoy listening to, if that makes sense. Yeah, they're absolutely one of those bands that are influencer of big bands that you know. They just maybe arrived at slightly the wrong point in time for their own good yeah i i don't know I, I think they still arrived at a point where people could could appreciate them and if you look now at the, the critics and all of the music review pages they'll fawn over this now looking back mm-hmm. and saying what a great album that was in the same way that we're doing yeah well i think that probably wraps it up for this week i am delighted to get that one out there and i can't believe it's taken us this long to talk about it if i'm honest well we still haven't talked about the beatles yet so you know it's uh... <laughs> it's coming it's, it's coming going. good maybe that's episode 100 yeah good we'll show well what a brilliant records and um yeah do listen to them and hopefully we've uh put some light bulbs back on in people's minds to go back and pick this record up because it's definitely worth a go again yep totally agree Right, we should wrap it up there. Thank you for joining us. We will catch you all again soon. Thank you all. Cheers. Thank you for listening to another episode of I Might Be Wrong. 